Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equality, inclusion and diversity in financial services. Welcome to this special extended episode discussing current events around race and racism. I'm delighted to be joined by a blend of guests and friends to the podcast as I welcome four voices offering very different perspectives in terms of skills, experience and age. Today, my guests are Donna Herzman, an award-winning professional services executive, mentor and career coach. Donna was named one of the top senior ethnic executives in the UK and the USA in 2019 by Empower and Yahoo Finance. Dr. Funke Abimbola, MBE, CEO at the Austin Bronte Consultancy, advising C-suite and boards across multiple sectors. Paul monicoso Cleal, OBE, he is a non-executive director at Guy St. Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust, Kingston University and the National Citizens Service Trust. And he is also an advisor to Sainsbury's and the FA Premier League. And Reggie Nelson, Graduate Analyst at Legal and General Investment Management, or LGIM, Chair of the ACA Emerging Talent Advisory Group, and most recognised by the media as the young man who went from East London to the city. Welcome, everyone. It's wonderful to have you here today, this incredibly important discussion. And uh, let me just do a sort of quick situation update, I I think, in terms of the context of this. As many listeners will know, on the 25th of May, George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, was killed in Minneapolis, Minnesota during an arrest. His death triggered demonstrations and protests in more than 2,000 US cities and around the world, all against systemic racism and spotlighting the Black Lives Matter movement. This inciting incident has given many black people in the UK permission, freedom to respond by sharing their stories of racism. Everybody who listens to Diversity Podcasts will know that we take the subject of racism incredibly seriously. We believe that there is a horrific underrepresentation of ethnic minorities in the city of London, in the world of financial services. It is no coincidence our first episode talked about race, and it has been no coincidence that our second ever event with City AM also talked about race, second only to why diversity and inclusion matters. So therefore, I'm delighted to be interrupting our schedule to talk about why black lives matter and to have this discussion today. So where I'd like to start really is, you know, I was framing the situation there and I would love to invite each of our guests just to offer some opening thoughts and to consider this from a variety of different perspectives, really. Uh, Funke, I wonder if I could come to you first of all. I would love to hear your opening thoughts. So what I would say, Julia, on this is that this uh, perfect storm situation that we have has hit me in a way that I've never experienced. I spent the first two weeks after George Floyd was was killed in floods of tears with my 17-year-old son. And we have never done that before. And he's been very involved with my diversity work and has been with me to events, and he's very aware of the issues. But I think we've now got a situation which is a real burning platform for us to drive change. And that's what I'll say is my opening thoughts on this. And and Paul, may may I come to you for your thoughts as well? Thanks, Julia. Yeah, likewise, um, you know, I've been, I think everyone who I know has been affected by it in many ways, and uh, especially those closest to me. Um, I think what struck me about it, though, is for once, how this has crossed over. I'm sure we'll talk about 
this as, as we go through the podcast. It's really crossed over outside of the, the black community who have seen these things all too often into something that's really uh, transcended that and, and gone into the mainstream. And I think we've seen a lot of positive um, reactions to that, but also some negative as well. So it's really struck me about how it's become such a big issue. Um, and that's a good thing. And, and we'll definitely get into that, uh, as you say, throughout the show as well. Uh, Reggie, keen to hear your thoughts too, uh, if we could welcome you in as well. Oh, yeah, thanks, Julia. Um, for me, this, it does feel very, very different. Um, there is a real sense of change um, around this. And I was talking to some of my friends um, before, and I was saying that George Floyd's death almost reminds me of the uh, Montgomery bus boycott in 1955. Um, where uh, Rosa Parks took a stand, and that was the catalyst for change um, in order to sort of eradicate some sort of segregation there. And I feel like it's got the same feel to it now, whereby George Floyd's death has um, sparked uh, a worldwide sort of revolution, as it were, and I'm hoping that it is for the long term, not for the short term. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. And and Donna, if I could ask you for your opening thoughts as well. For me in particular, it's... It's always felt inconceivable in this day and age that someone could le- lose their life um, due to predominantly to the, the colour of their skin and the failure of another human being not to respond uh, to someone when they hear the words, I can't breathe. And I think the death of George Floyd has brought into sharp focus for the entire world due to the help of social media that these occurrences happen every day um, and that there are people who are members of the human race that live in fear from authorities and institutions that by and large we look up to to maintain um, equity in the world and to keep all of us as individuals safe. And, you know, like some of my fellow um, presented today I, I felt I found that I could not actually write anything whether it was a tweet or a LinkedIn submission or just my thoughts without weeping uncontrollably because I realized that he could have been my brother my cousin my uncle my nephew my best friend you know who was just looking at that day as another day and ended up you know never seeing his family or in fact, life again. So I think it, that's why it's now a catalyst, because it's, it's an unacceptable outcome for anybody that values human life. And, and really what I'm sort of picking up from those opening statements, and thank you all for, for all of those, is, is that just how deeply human, personal, uh, the humanity or arguably lack of humanity that's been reflected through it. but also. Um, how it's crossed over actually into everyday lives as well as internationally as well. Uh, and, but it's in its potential to be a catalyst for change, which is, which is really interesting. And I, w- I would like now, if we may, just to, kind of to, to move the conversation on just a little bit. But isn't it interesting? It's actually not very far that it has to move because one of the, the, the things that I've been really paying attention to recently is the conversation around institutional racism and how that reveals itself in everyday life. And I would really like to get into how racism reveals itself in organisations and really what businesses need to do to recognise it and do something about it as well. Uh, Donna, may I come to you first of all? I would love your 
your thoughts on that question about institutional racism? The issue around racism in institutions um, kind of makes it sound like racism is an overt practice, that it's it's obvious and it's seen and it's transparent. Um, I, you know, the way I've experienced it, it, it does not come across that way. Um, occasionally, but not not often. Often, I believe it's reflected and embedded in things like microaggressions. So that manifests itself, for instance, in um, non-white people. So I'm going to use that term, non-white people not being considered for roles at um, entry level into an organisation, not identified as potential talent and therefore not given the opportunity along with their white counterparts to um, be developed and supported as they progress their careers. But I think above all, what does not come across is being anti-racist. And what I mean by that is when people do make, make statements such as, you know, why don't you go back to where you came from, which I have faced um, at organisations, or, you know, what was your holiday like um, at your father's land, which is, again, suggesting that, um, you know, I'm not British, that nobody else speaks up. So for me, what's really important is that organisations recognise not just racism and the role of microaggressions, but have a culture where such behaviour is not tolerated. And if necessary, that those that um, exhibit those unacceptable behaviours are publicly highlighted and whatever actions the organisations take are shared amongst everybody else. And the key to me is leadership. Leaders that walk the talk and have actions that support and embrace the, the fact that all their employees and everyone that works for them, and in fact, also their stakeholders and their supply chain, it's about giving people equality of treatment, respect for them and their thoughts, and the space to listen and allow them to contribute to the organisation as a whole. And it's interesting because the question of culture and leadership comes up a lot. And, and But I think it's this important thing about calling out. Paul, can I bring you in at this point? I would love to hear your thoughts as well uh, from an organisational perspective about you know, how does racism reveal itself to you and, uh, and also what, what organisations could be doing to address that? I suppose um, the most obvious way in which racism reveals itself in organisations is when you look at them from the outside or from the inside and you see... Um, mostly white people at the top and mostly black people at the bottom uh, broadly. And that's typically what happens. And uh, I see that in professional services where I've worked for many years. I see that in the health service where I'm a non-executive director now. I see it in football where I do some advisory work. I, I see it in higher education where I'm a non-executive director too. So it's pretty much everywhere. Uh, that's the first thing. So the symptoms very clear. Um, sometimes reinforced by some of the points that, that Donna makes, I think, in terms of how then people see the world within that. So, you know, when I was a partner at, at PricewaterhouseCoopers, people thought there were no black partners for a long time because they just assumed I wasn't a partner. Um, so there's, uh, there's those reinforcing stereotypes that don't help. Um, so that's the manifestation. It's very much about lack of representation at the top and usually also over-representation at the bottom in low-paid, fairly menial jobs. Um, and we've seen the effect of that uh, with the virus uh, recently too. Um, what encourages me about 
organizations, the ones that I'm involved with at the moment, um, is that going back to the point I made about crossing over and you mentioned it to Julia, I have in my 30 odd years of working life, not heard white colleagues talk about systemic racism, institutional racism in private sector companies, for example. I've not, not heard them talk about white privilege either. These are, these are concepts that are in books written by black people typically and articles written by black people. And now they're being talked about pretty openly by senior you know, white colleagues of mine. And that really is the first time I've, I've ever heard it. And I, I've been struck by how many of them, I think, genuinely have been shocked um, by lack of understanding, the fact that they've never had these conversations before. And clearly to change things, change is, about, change is often in the hands, usually in the hands of the majority. So that's, so that's a really important change. So when, when Reggie says that he hopes change will come from this, the source of the change has to be influential white people in large part, fired up, of course, by, by the rest of us um, uh, and, and encouraged and given some guidance too. So that, that change could happen now if we get to a tipping point of enough people really starting, starting to care and, it, and the conversation has gone beyond you know, black people talking to each other about these difficult issues into conversations that are, in the first instance, quite difficult and a bit stilted. But when the right, um, the right environment is created, I think can be had and people are beginning to listen uh, and learn. And I think that gives us the, the opportunity to, to, to get some of that change that we know uh, is long overdue, but very, very necessary. And Funke, I see you uh, nodding uh, on, on Zoom. Uh, would you like to come in? Any additional thoughts? And then Reggie, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that as well. I absolutely and wholeheartedly agree with what Paul has just said. I have seen a real sense of urgency from all of my allies who aren't Black, every single one. So whether that's my uh, close friend who'd be mortified for me to name her on this, um, who's a white Jewish mother of two young children, married, and um, lives in a very, you know, well-to-do part of London and has always been a strong advocate and champion. But she contacted me specifically around action. She said, we've been talking about this for years. What action can we take? I had the same from my five core group of uh, white male allies, all of whom have slightly nuanced aspects to their allyship. And this has been a, a journey for me to appreciate as well, because I have one white male ally who's the first in his uh, family to go to university uh, and comes from a, a mining background. I have another who is from a more privileged background uh, from the north of the country and had uh, probably more middle-class uh, upbringing. Uh, and, so, and so on and on and on. So there are nuances I now understand with allyship and we, we can't just say you're a white, white ally or white male ally. But the important thing I've learned, and this has been a real eye-opener for me, is that all of them now recognize that whether or not they were aware that they had that privilege, the reality is they did have that privilege. Because for, for half of them, they didn't, re because they didn't think anything of it, right? They're not conscious that they've got this privilege. Whereas there are some who are very aware that they have privilege and therefore might be quite defensive about wanting to do anything to change that. So 
when we're looking at influencing change, we have to understand the finer nuances around allyship and how we can bring a significant minority along to be really quite militant. I mean, I use that word in terms of there's a compelling burning platform. And I'm very happy that my set of allies were there already, but it now makes me realize why I'd struggled with others in the journey within the legal profession. Now I get it. It's the nuances, and that's a key point. And, and can I just just ask you to expand where you were talking about some of the, the action points that, you're, that, that one of your allies came to? Can I ask what advice you gave? So with one of them, I'd worked very closely with him at a former employer, a large global company. And this individual is a very senior leader now within the global aspect uh, of this role. So he is incredibly influential. And before I left this organization, I'd co-founded a bursary scheme for underrepresented groups that was funded by the company. Um, but we had many categories of underrepresented group and Bane was this mass, I think we called it ethnicity. This gentleman is now putting skin in the game. He realizes that we have to give additional weighting in the, you know, processing of the, the applicants to the black applicants. He now realizes that saying BAME actually sort of is muddying the waters. He said, I've looked at the data, but the fact he's prepared to put a stake in the sand on this, you can imagine the sorts of conversations he's going to have to have around that, right? But I got a mess un- completely without me prompting. I hadn't been in touch with him for, because I was just in a hazy fog for the two weeks afterwards. So I actually hadn't contacted a lot of people because I was just finding it hard to process. But so he proactively contacted me with an action plan. And that's just one example of the many things he'd already done. So at this point, he'd already had the meeting to decide how they were going to change the criteria and the, the way that the judging was going to take place. So I hope I've clarified that that's just one example. But there are many examples. Well, first of all, it is encouraging to hear that there are many people who are of white privilege, such as myself, who are going, there's something we can, we can do about that. To be taking an, an active action plan based approach to tackling it rather than because rhetoric is, well, of course, you know, it is welcome to a degree, but actually we need things that are real and practical as well. And then also thinking about the, the nuances of allyship, which I think is, is also very, very interesting. Reggie, really keen to bring you in here for, for your thoughts as well on, uh, again, to come back to the central question about how racism reveals itself in organisations. And then, again, thoughts uh, to add to our other guests about well, things we can do about it. Yeah, it's been, it's been echoed. Um, I feel like racism, especially institutionally, isn't sort of manifested in, in, at face value, but it is in uh, different things such as lack of understanding and from what I've seen, um, a lack of education around things like culture, which can sometimes lead to ignorance. Um, and I say this because, I mean, I haven't been working for, for that long, right? But um, I was quite fortunate enough to do quite a few internships um, at various asset managers and hedge funds in the city. And I, remember, I will never forget this. And I always tell this story because uh, at the time it was funny, but now, I, now that I'm in this sort of bubble, I understand it. Um, a bit more. I arrived to my desk, uh, first day of my internship, a large uh, firm, and I was doing introductions to my team. And this guy, still in touch with him today, lovely guy, um, he introduces himself to me and he asks me to introduce myself. And before I even said a word, he goes, no, sorry, can you wrap it for me? And um, 
I, I stood there and I was like, why do you want me to... I, I didn't say it because I didn't know how to react, but in my head I was thinking, why does this guy want me to rap for him? And then at the time I, I laughed it off. It was, it was funny. We're still in touch today. But the thing I go back to in regard to that lack of education, lack of understanding can lead to ignorance and it can be seen as, you know, someone else might have taken it as, you know, this guy's being racist. And why is he stereotyping me as someone that knows how to rap just because my wider community probably can rap. So I think based on what um, you know, people have said, but particularly what Donna said, it can manifest its, it can manifest its way um, in different ways, essentially. Almost as you're saying it, I can hear it on a trading floor. I can hear it in the corridors of a glass and steel building in Canary Wharf. I can hear it in the streets of the coffee shops of, of, of the city um, because this is the common language that people think it's appropriate to use that reveals itself either explicitly or indeed, you know, thoughts and biases that, that reveal themselves implicitly as well. Um, thank, thank you all for all your thoughts there. And I think there's, a, there's some very uh, salient awakenings to be taken from that. And then also some very practical thoughts to be taken forward as well. As you can probably hear from my voice, I, I feel like I'm treading very delicately through this conversation. And I do actually want to come on later on to the conversation about language. Uh, so for listeners on the show uh, who may well be feeling, as I am feeling as a person of, of great white privilege, is, is encouraging to hear some of the comments that have come out about the awakening. Uh, and I hope that our listeners will consider themselves awakened, but also in terms of the delicacy of the conversation as well. But, the, and, but that's never to take away from the importance of it as well. What I would like to now think about is how do we how do we improve the ethnic minority representation within organisations? Um, I'd love to begin to explore this from different perspectives. And so, Paul, I'm going to come to you to talk about board. Reggie, I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, entry level into the industry as well. Uh, Donna, you know, leadership and ascension of leadership through the organisation. And and Funke, picking up on a comment that came earlier about culture, if we would. Paul, let me come to you first of all. Uh, how do we change the the mix at board level? Um, well, I suppose the short answer to that is deliberately. Um, it won't happen by chance, uh, for sure. It hasn't and it won't. Um, so one thing you can't do is just wait for it to get better. Some, sometimes you hear people talk about things like, well, you know, um, as time goes on, then the situation will right itself. But it, that hasn't happened for a long time. It didn't happen with with women on boards either. I mean, we, we were stuck at a very low level for a long time until people took decisive action. And that came through, I think, really the Davis Review, um, which then led ultimately to the 30% Club. And this, this notion that um, still might not be sufficient, but that we might be a good idea to have 30% of women on boards. And I think that that caught on and people took action and got you know, relatively close to achieving it in, in many cases. So the Parker Review seeks to do something similar in relation to ethnic minorities. Um, but for me, the aspiration is, is insufficient um, for two reasons. Firstly, it talks about having one ethnic minority member on boards by about 2021, I think. Um, probably, probably optimistic, actually. But to me, not enough for a couple of reasons. One, uh, black and ethnic minority covers a whole range of, um, of different uh, minorities. So one person... Is actually doing the job of, uh, of several in that sense and can't be representative of everybody although being non-white is a is a helpful and, and there are some common perspectives to it so i think that's not really enough diversity in the first place 
Secondly, though, um, I think it's important to, to recognise the dynamics of this. And I've, I've been the only minority on the board on many occasions, and it's, it can be a pretty lonely place. When difficult subjects like the one we're talking about come up and you're the only minority in the room, try having that conversation and see how much you get in terms of support around the table, often not a lot. So you need allies around the table and often people on this sort of subject, you need people who are also from, from minorities. And as I say, the first diversity point also stands. So I think the, the Parker Review isn't really going to do enough if it just seeks to get one uh, minority person on board, but it's a start. I also think the experience from getting more women on board showed there was a difference between executive positions and non-executive positions too. So it's easier with non-execs in the sense that uh, you can put people on, you don't have to get them through the whole organisation and, and that talent management issue is often more of a problem for organisations because they've got maybe two or three top layers without any black or ethnic minority composition. So the executive side takes time. That's been seen through the progress that's been made on gender diversity, but you can do it quicker on the non-exec side. So that's, a, that's perhaps a place to start. Um, but there's a long way to go. And as other people have said, um, standing in the way of all of these are the day-to-day small things that add up individual decisions that on the face of it, you might be able to defend a promotion or not. When you aggregate them together, you know, you end up with a situation we have with very, very few uh, black and ethnic minority people. So you have to get below that level and do something structural to deal with a structural problem, essentially, and not try and hope that individuals will somehow change their behavior collectively uh, over time. So it's a matter of really dealing with those, the aggregation of all those minor incidents, decisions, etc., and finding a structural um, approach to, to dealing with that, that eventually will come through to, to better board representation. But to my mind, starting with the non-execs is, a, is, is the quickest way to make some progress and actually open up the right sort of conversations at that level. Yes, and, and another thing that people do talk about a lot is the role of recruitment firms and thinking about, you know, are they putting forward board candidates and then also the board advisors in holding the boards to account on have you looked at all your, your candidates as well through, through um, uh, a, a very severe lens, not a wouldn't it be nice tick-boxing lens. Um, Richie, I'd love to uh, come to the other end of the structure, but you are well on your way. I mean, we, we've spoken before about your incredible career journey, that you are on, your, on, on this flight path of extraordinary uh, uh, ascension. Um, but I would love to come to you on your thoughts, because I know you spend a lot of time also mentoring young black and ethnic minority candidates as well, is thinking about the pipeline from a, for a new entrant into the industry as well. Yes. Um, so... For me, especially from a grassroots or entry level standpoint, I feel like in the near future, if we do want to see a real change, then the recruitment and how these large institutions recruit definitely needs to adapt and needs to change as well. I feel like with these hyper-competitive firms, they recruit, for example, from a particular pool of academic institutions, namely Welsh Group Universities. And there is nothing wrong with recruiting from these institutions at all. But if... The, if firms want to see a wider a wider diversity and sort of narrow that ethnic disparity, then you do need to cast that net further out and wheel in wider talent because there is talent up and down the country, right? If, for example, if you look at Ruskin University, they're made up of about 75% white students and around 4% black students. So if you do recruit from these same pools, then 
it doesn't really make sense that you want to widen your diversity, but you're still looking in the same um, environment, right? And, you know, the thing is, black people, it's not like black people aren't applying to university, right? They are. I mean, they're twice as likely to apply than, than their white counterparts, but there are several different factors that impede them from getting into these sort of elite institutions. And I think this is where class plays a part as well. Um, class definitely does sort of have a, a foothold in this. And, you know, if you look at young students from disadvantaged areas, you know, they're more likely to drop out, more likely to not get to honor or first. And in regards to graduate employment, they're less likely to achieve than their sort of um, advantaged peers. And from a social mobility standpoint or from a social disparity standpoint, if you look at black and mixed uh, heritage people, they make up a large proportion of that in the sort of council estate environments and the social disadvantaged environments. Um, followed by Pakistani and Bangladesh. So it, all of these tie in together to almost put a, almost like a headwind for young black talent. And I feel like the quicker firms understand that and they grab onto that and they are able to incorporate that in their recruitment process, then it will create a fairer and level playing field. But I think the first thing is just to acknowledge that, you know, things do need to change and the way that we recruit that do need to adapt because there is, like I said, talent up and down the country. And just as an example, I, I, I went to a meeting once and I remember someone said, oh, we need more Reggies in our firm. And it was really humbling to hear, don't get me wrong, you know, it was really, really humbling to hear. However, I, I sat there and I said, you have no idea. Like, I am not an anomaly. There are tons of people like me um, on, on, on my council estate, but just will never be given opportunity. And to that point, I had to go and knock on doors to get my opportunity. I didn't have the opportunity to give it to me. And you know, not everyone's going to go knock on doors and get those opportunities. So you know, it is really, um, people from those type of environments are really on the back foot. And the quicker firms can, number one, adapt their recruitment processes. And number two, um, acknowledge that sociability does play a big part in this. I feel like in the long term, we will get to where we need to be. Absolutely. And I would recommend everybody have a listen to the podcast episode that we, we interviewed uh, Reggie about his career journey. And it is incredibly inspiring. Uh, but it also really strikes me that uh, so many, we've got a thumbs up from Funke over, over the Zoom platform, uh, which listeners will not be able to see, but you'll be able to hear for sure. But, but that's a huge, huge champions of everything you've done, a huge support of everything you've done, Reggie, and you're, you're incredibly inspiring. Um, Donna, could I come to you from a perspective of leadership ascension, you know, thinking about the, the career journey? And uh, it's come up a couple of times within this conversation about leadership at the top but also the next levels down as well. And, and what role and what must that level do in order to, uh, to basically uh, attract greater black and, and minority ethnic talent into the industry as well? Uh, uh, thanks, Julia. I think you know, one of the things they can do is the point that Paul made around the very visibility of the organisation. So definitely I'm seeing um, you know, within the networks that um, I through frequent especially around millennials and um and i'm also a school governor so you know when i when i hear the, the children speak or students speak at schools they look at an organization and the look of that organization gives them an indication as to whether or not they believe that is somewhere they should join uh, because they have an opportunity to both survive and to thrive and i think each of those uh, points of equal importance. Um, so clearly the harder it is to survive in an organisation, i.e. to progress and fulfil your, your dreams, requires a high degree of resilience. And that can be quite sapping on the soul, and in fact sapping on um, your ability to, 
to sustain your performance level. The opportunity to thrive is to be able to see a path um, to be able to move up into the organisation where you can gain more influence and ideally help others uh, follow uh, behind you. But your ability to do that, I believe, is influenced by a couple of things. So one of the things I, you know, when I look back on my, my career, the things that helped me progress as a leader was actually having what I call influential sponsorship. They're not just sponsors, but people, when they spoke, the rest of uh, the organisation, and in particular their peers, actually listened to them and took note of what they were saying as it uh, related to both to my ability, but also my potential um, to develop as a leader. Access to um, business networks are critical. And what I mean by that is being able to sit in a board meeting when the board and senior leaders are discussing the things that are critical to the organization's survival, their performance, their growth, uh, gives you an insight that is not readily available. And there's lots of books and books will, you know, will give a a potential perspective, but being there, seeing how people interact and how they weigh up um, their options, because nothing's ever black or white, if I can use that term on this call, provides you with, um, I think it's fire in the belly to begin to embrace and understand how you can contribute positively to those business outcomes. But unfortunately, many people don't have access to that kind of um, inner chamber experience. And it's quite interesting that yesterday I was contacted by uh, somebody, he's white, he's senior, he's an influencer. And he is really concerned that, you know, him going back into the workplace to promote ethnic minority representation at at a leadership level will be seen as tokenism. So, you know, coming back to the point that Funke made, that there is an issue, I think, about authenticity, that as organisations move forward and they want to support and promote um, ethnic minorities, the starting point is to treat them as they would their fellow white employees that they believe are talented and have leadership potential, but to look at the things that are blocking their ability to see them as equal and to address those blockages directly. That's really interesting, because I'm sure a lot of listeners will be sitting there thinking, well, I, I want to do something about it, but it, does it look like I'm either jumping on a bandwagon and it's, it's tokenistic or indeed... Um, it's going to be too awkward a conversation to be having when actually this is the time to go lean in, people. Absolutely lean in. And also, I love your comment about take in, right? So take people into your spaces. Uh, and um, and because it's only through the uh, the experience you get of being of being present in the room. But of course, as you say, I love the, your expression about, you know, puts the fire in your belly to, to, to see what, see, and see the potential to, in order to achieve it as well. And Funke, if I could um, ask you to talk about culture, of which we have talked about a little bit so far, and then also drive us into kind of the next area that I'm very keen to explore a little bit more, which you did address also earlier, is around allies. So culture and allies. And how does um, uh, how how do you view that in terms of creating more allies and also encouraging a culture where allyship matters? So for me, and this is having had many different types of types of employer as as a solicitor so i've worked and this context is really important so do bear with me 
I've worked at four different private practice law firms as a corporate lawyer. And I have now worked at two global pharmaceutical companies as a uh, strategic uh, business ops, you know, lawyer, governance professional, whatever you want to call it, uh, where law has been the sideline, but essentially I've been a commercial leader. And the distinction is really, really a key one to make, because when you're trying to drive cultural change, there needs to be a way, it's, it's a mixture of both the carrot and the stick. Because the way I put it is, and someone taught me this at a law firm, they said that in their drive to push things forward, they recognize that if you're looking at a group of, across the whole law firm, for example, as being the 100%, all the staff, and 20% of those staff will never get it. They'll be heavily resistant, and they'll have all sorts of reasons why they just don't accept any of what we're saying. You know, And she's had to sort of accept that. The 20% of the other end are already on board because they already have a strong moral code or social conscience or whatever the driver might be for them. They're already there. It's the 60% in the middle who want to do the right thing but don't have the tools with which to do the right thing. And that's what is so important when you're driving cultural change because you have to be able to leverage whatever you know, whatever burning platforms, is it going to be the business case? Is it going to be, you know, the customers are more diverse? You know, I've, I've, it's taken me years to appreciate this as someone who, who does this diversity work outside of my paid role. So there has to be an action plan, carrot and stick. People need to be held accountable. They have to be set measurables around how far we moved. And that will vary depending on the organization. And setting corporate values that are linked into this, you know, there's a whole piece. But without linking this to people's performance reviews, for example, and saying you won't get your pay rise, you won't get your full bonus uh, and hitting people in the pocket. But some people will actually be influenced by that. I, I think you need to have a comprehensive approach to driving cultural change within any any organization. It's a lot harder to do this in certain business models because. Private practice law firms, it's a fee-earning um, environment. So I was called the fee-earner, as are as all lawyers in that setting. And you are treated like royalty because you are generating fees. Everything lends itself to supporting the fee-earners, and everyone else is almost secondary to that. That's, that's a profit center, so you've got to guard that. When you move into industry, so in the pharmaceutical industry, it's completely different. The sales guys, who are the equivalent of the fee-earners, they're not treated, everyone's bonus in the same way. Everyone is, is motivated by how well the company does, irrespective of whether or not they are directly generating revenue. And that's a crucial change because there's a sense of shared vision behind reaching that common goal. Whereas, unfortunately, what happens in fee-earning environments is that because of the actual structure, it's a lot harder to have that. So moving to industry was an inspiration for me. Because I saw that this is what, you know, is possible. But it means challenging the fee earning and other similar environments where the actual system, the actual way that revenue flows, etc., doesn't lend itself well to the utopian uh, ideal that I described earlier of having a comprehensive plan around driving cultural change.
And, and I think that needs to be sort of thought through very carefully in terms of you know, what kind of organisation do you want to be, which ultimately is going to attract the best talent uh, for, for as, as a whole. Interesting, really, really interesting. Can, we, can I just pick up on the question about allies? And actually, I would love to, uh, Reggie to bring you in here as well about you know, kind of why, um, you know, what allies can do and what role allies play uh, in this as well. Yeah, for me, allies play a huge part, sometimes even more than those that are being affected, because sometimes those allies are the voices that are going to be heard. For me, I can only use personal experience for this. And Quinton Price, who, for those that know the story, he's, he's the guy's daughter I knocked on. He's a white, middle-class man. Um, and I, I turned up to his house. I'm a black kid, working-class environment. You know, I didn't have much growing up at all. The disparities between our lives were so evident on face value, but he was able to, it's been six years now, take me from this kid from a council estate that was excluded from school and had you know trouble with law and all the rest of it into um, a corporate finance analyst that travels the world to help change, right? And it was because of his visibility and the guidance that he gave to me. He was able to show me what was available, number one, and because of that, he gave me the guidance and I was able to go out and do whatever it is I needed to do. And that essentially transcended into hope, right? So in terms of allyship, I feel like the allies that make a difference are the ones that really provide visibility, they provide that guidance and essentially provide hope that you know, things can change. And I use my personal example because, you know, it's, it's quite you know close to me, but those principles can be um, translated into the topic of institutional racism. It can be translated into um, various different um, things like in the workplace and really making that tangible change. And of course, it's wonderful hearing Donna's comments earlier about, you know, having somebody whose voice is really listened to. And I'm sure that was that was absolutely the case in yours where other people kind of woke up. Can I ask you, did you find that because of the the calibre of your ally and the seniority of your ally that others also not only took notice, but also uh, changed their behaviour, which would be ultimately hopeful? A hundred percent. At the time, Quinton was the, um, he was like a senior managing director for BlackRock, which is the largest asset management firm in the world. And I, I'll never forget the, the first day I went into BlackRock. I was the youngest person there. I was an insight there. I was a college student. And I looked at mess. My tie was really short. You know, I had this Nike side, side pouch. And I, I didn't go there prepared at all, right? And um, you know, someone asked, you know, you're, you're, you're quite young. How did you get over there? I said, oh, Quinton allowed me to come to the inside day. And as soon as I said his name, their face lit up. You know Quinton. And obviously, I don't know about hierarchy. And I don't know about, you know, how, how it works in these institutions. I'm just named up in here. And you can see the difference in people's faces when you say those names. So having someone of that stature, you know, be my sort of sponsor and be my ally, it was able to just provide me with confidence, number one, because I've got someone that, you know, at the time was looking after £944 billion that believes in me. I I don't even know what finance is. I didn't know what an index was. I didn't know what half the thing I'm doing now was at the time. But he saw something in me that I didn't see myself. And that allyship was crucial for my development it's almost like if someone who I have met for at the time about a month believes in me, then how can I not believe in myself? And if you was to use that example into the whole concept of change, if someone that is an ally believes in change so much, that almost provides us with hope that we, you know, we, we can change something as well. So having those people with a big voice does make a huge difference, 100%. And to everybody who listens to this, we have listeners all over the world who are, are, are literally sitting there thinking, oh, I wish I could do something. I wish I could do something. 
you know, actually there's right there, right there is there is one thing you could do tomorrow is to become an ally, to get out there and actually take the take people into rooms and really sponsor them. And if you have the voice that people are going to be listening to is 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 your responsibility and Actually, you know, having a voice is a privilege. It's not something to abuse. And this is a great way in which to inspire hope and change across organisations as well, which is really exciting. However, of course, I was saying earlier about you'll also notice in my, my energy and my voice is, you know, I'm kind of I'm, a, I'm an optimistic, hopeful individual. And as I've been trying to pick my way delicately through this conversation, there is a conversation to be had about language. And, and Donna, I would really love to come to you on, on this question about, uh, you know, people are, are concerned about the terminology and the language around race, and, and naturally perhaps want to back away from it. Uh, my argument is get straight in there and get it wrong. Uh, and, you know, if you do it with the right intention, somebody will set you straight as well. Um, but Don, Donna, may I come in to, uh, to bring you in at this point uh, to hear your thoughts about language and race? I think um, it's an interesting topic. My, so at a global level, I can understand why government institutions are trying to find a label, and I believe that's what it is, a label to try to group all these people from different and varied backgrounds. And that title they've come up with is BAME, Black and Asian Minority Ethnic. But I think, as Paul said earlier on, you know, during this discussion, that covers a myriad of different people from different cultures, from different backgrounds. And in some ways is not recognising or giving recognition to the fact that as people are all very different, with different combinations of life experiences, different um, things that have contributed to our lives. So, for instance, you know, my mother, you know, has often told me that my great, great, great aunt, who, you know, I clearly never had the pleasure of meeting, was white. And... Um, but you wouldn't know that for looking at me because, you know, clearly people see when they look at me, they see a black woman. So my concern about language is that it avoids or gives uh, an excuse for people not to spend time to get to understand other people and their background. And I think as you know, we look at the world and um, intersectionality and integration becomes more and more of what we see today. If we fail to take the opportunity to get to know people in their backgrounds, then we will continue to exclude people who will feel that they have no home whatsoever, where they can't relate to BAME as a title that reflects them. They can't relate to white because they themselves are not white. And we are just providing, an, uh, unfortunately, an opportunity where we never get to the point of looking at anti-racism as something that no longer exists in our society because we've excluded people from society and from the ability to express themselves in a way that is comfortable and that others will listen to. We, we've, we've talked in the conversation there about uh, talenting and also ascension. We've talked about culture and we've talked about allies and sponsorship, talked about the language of inclusion and, and avoiding some of the easy traps that perhaps some people might may well fall into. But I am interested in discussing the topic of retention. Now, in a previous episode, we uh, interviewed Janet Thomas, who was a previous president of Women in Banking Finance. When she started her tenureship, 
She was very optimistic and very engaged by the number of black young executives coming into uh, the, the cohort, of the, the membership of Women Banking and Finance. When she left a matter of years later, she was really quite mortified by how many had not stayed in the industry. And I would like to talk about this topic of retention. And I think it's something we have to really think about. Paul, I would love to come to you first, if I may, on your thoughts. Uh, what could be done in terms of encouraging staff to stay when they're on their career journey? Well, I think... Reggie nailed it when he used the word hope um, a bit earlier. Um, now, you come back to how do you give people hope, but I think if people have hope and you could use different words like belief in themselves, confidence, not only in themselves but in the organisation because a lot of focus is put on the ability of individuals to progress within organisations, but perhaps not enough is said about the ability of organisations to develop in a way that allows that to happen more readily. Um, but I think if people feel that they've got the opportunity to explore their own sort of boundaries of the career uh, and to get new experiences and the organisation will give them that and then give them training and the right feedback so that they can then get promoted, then they'll stay. Why wouldn't you? Um, people, people leave because that hope isn't there and that is borne out by their experience, unfortunately. So I think... Um, you can say all the right things, and obviously there's lots of organisations who are saying all the right things now. The question is going to be in a year's time when we look back and say what you said a year ago, did you then do anything and did the people who are in your organisation um, believe what you said? Uh, have your have, Has what you said been borne out in terms of the actual actions that have occurred? And I think if people feel that the promises are being fulfilled over time, they'll get greater confidence and they'll want to stay. But it's not just a kind of overnight um, transition. People have to see the realities of, you know, my my daily work life is better. I don't experience these microaggressions so often. I start to get better opportunities in terms of the jobs I get allocated or the projects I get allocated in my work. I get rewarded for that in terms of pay and promotions. And then over time, I see my colleagues getting the same. I see recruitment of people who are going to be role models above me. And all in all, I look at the world in a different way because I now have hope that in my career will develop and I'll stay as a result whereas before perhaps I felt that maybe that wasn't going to happen so I'll try my luck elsewhere where ironically the grass is very rarely greener on the other side either um, because this is a very broad problem so I think organizations have to think very carefully about how they interact with their people and, and why think question themselves about why should our people why should our black people in the organization trust us you know why should they have hope in us why should they stay and if they can answer those questions, hopefully by talking to those black people as well, then they've got more chance of creating the conditions under which those people will want to stay uh, and progress within the organisation and enrich that organisation in the process. Reggie, from your experience of kind of being at the, the younger end of the career journey, let's just say, and as you look ahead and you, you talked earlier about hope as well, and you, you're hearing what Paul, Paul's just said as well, is there anything you, you'd add to that so that organisations really need to think about when they're talking about young black talent? Yeah, I think education is is one of the first things. And from a person that's starting off in my career, when I can see that uh, an institution is really trying to educate themselves on what is happening and the major issues and trying to target the issues, for me, it's promising and it does give you that sense of hope. For instance, I, I remember I watched a, a Sky News interview, and I'm not going to name shame for, for these reasons, but um, there was a, a journalist that asked uh, someone in frontline politics a question and said, you know, how many black politicians are in the cabinet and they responded with uh, something along the lines of 
there are a lot of BME representation in the cabinet, for instance, Rishi Sunak and uh, Priti Patel, right? And, you know, they almost masked away in that, the acronym of BAME, right? And for me, if, I, if that happened in my organization, I wouldn't be too pleased with that because the, the specific issue that was asked is about, you know, black employees, let's say, but then it's digressed into this category of BAME. So back to the point I was saying on education and the genuine care, if I can see that my organization is trying to really target the issue and it's really showing a genuine care, that for me gives me hope that you know, if I stay here, then that's really going to benefit me in my career development. The next thing is the sponsorship. Sponsorship goes a real long way. Sponsorship and mentorship. I know that they are two different things, but they do go, go hand in hand. And if me as a young employee can see that there is the right sponsorship behind me and I am receiving the right mentorship in order to develop in my career, again, that for me, there's no reason for me to leave. Right? Um, being compensated rightly. Uh, there's tons of studies out there to show that you know, black employees are sometimes um, disproportionately paid less than um, fellow counterparts. And you know, simple things like rectifying that, again, will allow retention to happen. If I'm you know, having a, a coffee with my, my colleagues and I find out that we do exactly the same work, but he's paid more than me, then it does pose questions inside of my head as to why that is the case. So just ensuring that the, the colleagues are you know, rightly compensated, again, is one thing to, to bear in mind. And also back to the point that Paul said, just career development. If I can see that I'm going to be developing in this organization, in this sector, then there's no real reason for me to depart. And if I can see that there is the right visibility, there is the right representation there for me, that does give me motivation to carry on and want to develop my career. So I think all these are you know, incumbent upon the sector to really um, put in place. And if institutions can put that in place, then it, it will definitely help with retention, particularly from an entry standpoint. Wonderful. Right. Well, this has been an incredible conversation. You know, it's been nearly an hour uh, when I've been more than happy to extend the usual length of the discussion because this is so important. It's been really rich with insight as well, thinking about leadership and culture and allies and you say sponsorship and mentorship. Also thinking uh, about the carrots and the sticks and the structures and the organisational uh, change that can happen, the personal accountability as individuals and leaders in the industry. And then also uh, thinking about how we can support career career journeys and actually lean in and step up to the conversation. So this isn't a conversation, it's actually an action plan as well, which has been incredibly, uh, incredibly useful. Um, I am very mindful that we could have talked for so much longer. I mean, one of the things I do want to talk to and I will commit here and now to is I want to talk about the race inequality report. And I also would like to talk about uh, self-care and mental well-being during this time as well. Funke, you talked at the very beginning about how uh, personally this has, has affected you and your family as you've been sort of watching the news and events and what that has meant in terms of your personal review of everything that's going on, but also what this means, of course, as we go through our daily lives as well. Um, I would love to just wrap up with um, just some final closing comments, really. I, I, we've talked about hope. We've talked about being optimistic for the future as well. I would love to hear from each of you about, you know, what are you, what are you optimistic about? And um, Donna, perhaps I could come to you first of all. Um, optimistic. I think, I think I've always had a huge degree of optimism. Um, because I found that essential for my ability to navigate my um, both my corporate career, but also my desire to achieve a better life for myself and be able to, to support and help my family as well. So optimism, I believe, is ingrained in who I am. 
But if I look at the need for optimism beyond myself, I think we're at an inflection point where we have the ability to commit as a human race, because um, I think as Paul said, it's going to take all allies working together for racism to be eradicated, but above all for equality, for everyone to prevail. That if we put our minds to it and we call out those who are not prepared to step up and contribute fully to the fairness that we know should and must exist in the human race, that there is nothing that we collectively can't change. I think we also have to recognise that this is a journey. Lots of people are calling for lots of changes very quickly. My concern about that would be that it's going to be window dressing. But if we commit, and we as leaders, because I believe everybody is a leader in some capacity in their lives, to showing people how to make equality a reality, then really there's nothing that we can't do. Wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. And Paul, let me come to you next for your, your closing comments, reasons to be optimistic. Well, I'm, I'm always an optimist anyway. Um, I think the bit that gives me optimism, as I've said earlier, I think is the fact that these conversations are happening uh, and they're happening uh, at the top of organisations uh, in rooms full of mostly white people as well, but happily not solely white people because that wouldn't be much of a conversation. That's kind of the point of all this. So I'm, I'm very optimistic about that and the fact that we might, yes, be getting to a tipping point where more people really understand. And it's frustrated me for many years that some very bright, brilliant people that I know simply haven't taken any of these points on board before about structural inequality and have thought that because they're good people, then everything will be all right. And it isn't. Um, and it won't be. And I think people are understanding that. And it's a negative thing for people to have to understand, but it's a necessary thing for people to understand. So I think we're getting past that point where people can deny that this is a problem anymore um, in large part and we'll have enough momentum, I hope, to achieve some progress. It serves no value at all to anybody in society to have a whole group of people, you know, all the people like Reggie, as he says, there's many people like him, um, for them not to have the opportunities that their talent deserves. That's not only a waste from their perspective, it's a waste from all their perspectives, including the organisations. Um, we'll get somewhere if people talk more, if they trust each other, if people are willing to give their organisations the benefit of the doubt for a bit, when the organisations show a genuine move towards change, I hope that will happen. But as I say, it's a two-way street. Both the individuals and the organisations they work into have to commit to work together on that. And that first step is talking. And that's why I'm optimistic. So, Reggie, let's, let's hear your final thoughts about what you're optimistic about. I think the main thing I'm optimistic about is definitely being part of the movement that would hopefully allow a lot more people that look like myself and are from the environment that I grew up in enter into these institutions that can quite frankly change someone's life right um I mentioned it before and I think Paul echoed it as well you know there are tons of people out there that are like me that are you know they are bright they are so tenacious they are so willing they're driven they have all the right skill sets to make a fantastic career in these um corporate institutions just as an example but just because of where they live or just because of the colour of their skin, they won't be given that sort of fair level playing field. And I think that's, that cuts me deep because, you know, that could have been me, right? And I, I don't want people to go and knock on doors. I don't want people to go and do something that is so sporadic or out of the box just so that they can have their voices heard. I feel like it should be a norm for people to have a, a particular opportunity based on how competent they are, not by 
other factors like you know that what, what class you're from or um any other factor so i am really really optimistic that there are going to be a lot more people that look like me are from a particular the same background as me getting those opportunities and it won't be too far between and Funke, let me bring you in for your, your final thoughts, your optimist, reasons to be optimistic. I have two reasons to be incredibly optimistic. The first reason is that this environment has led to a more widespread acknowledgement that racism actually exists. The second reason is that on the flip side, I feel there's a more widespread acknowledgement that privilege exists. Because until now, we've spent so much time trying to actually explain that racism does exist and been under so much pressure to uh, tell our stories and, you know, very draining activity that now there seems to be more awareness of the fact that it's not down to us as black people to take on that education piece. It's already difficult living with the day-to-day challenges. There's a much better understanding of the responsibility being put on someone who's not black to read the right books, to look at the resources of which they're in abundance. So I feel, you know, I think it's wonderful. I think that books like White Fragility really, really help uh, allies and, and others who are privileged to understand the nuances around that privilege. And that's what makes me really optimistic. The education piece is much better managed now. And it takes the pressure off us. It takes the emotional day-to-day toll of having to find and remember very upsetting examples of things that have happened to you and relive them every time you're telling the story. We, We don't feel we have to do that as much anymore. So that gives me huge hope for the future. It has been the most fantastic conversation. I can't tell you how grateful I am to all of you individually for all your thoughts. We've looked at this conversation from many many different perspectives many different lenses as I said before you know lots of very practical insights and recommendations but also bringing a very sort of personal career journey perspectives as well um Paul Funke Reggie Donna thank you all so much for being on the show today my name is Julia Streets and thank you as always to everybody for listening to Diversity Podcast This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsania for her insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com. And that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. All our episodes are available in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app. If you enjoy Diversity Podcast, remember to share on social media and give us a rating or review. It really helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.